I'm here at Penguin Random House on the Strand, huddled under a doorway, waiting to speak to the incredible changemaker, Caroline Criado Perez. Not only was she the person behind keeping a woman on the British banknote, yes, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, there was a moment where all banknotes were going to only have men on them, but she also campaigned successfully for the first female statue in Parliament Square. She's an award-winning and best-selling writer of Invisible Women, named as Book of the Decade and is a force to be reckoned with. And I, for one, cannot wait to meet her. And I have a funny feeling we might put the world to rights. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I'm the founder of Not on the High Street and Holly & Co. And I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. I believe that having a business, doing what you love, is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everybody start theirs. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs, and those who just simply inspire me, and asked them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor, NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown Hi Caroline, what an honour it is to be chatting with you today and I cannot wait to share your story, your learnings on this podcast today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for your dog's time, who's sitting on your lap. <laughs> Can you well, introduce you know, us Poppy to... Poppy is very, a very busy lady with a very busy schedule, but she was like, I've heard about this podcast, it sounds really great, I think we should definitely make time for it. So, you know. <laughs> well, thank you both for being here. You've had the most extraordinary life living all over the world. I'd love to start at the beginning of your story. You were born in Brazil. What Mm -hmm. was your childhood like? Um, Well, I don't remember Brazil because we left when I was one. Um, The first country that I remember is Spain, where we lived till I was about, uh, I was four going on five. Um, And then we moved to Portugal, which I remember really as you know, the happiest time of my life, just this perfect sun-filled, beach-soaked childhood um, up until the age of almost nine when we moved to Taiwan. And then I got sent to school in the UK. Why were you moving around so much, can I I ask? My dad's job. And uh, he got sent by his company to these different countries um, where, you know, We'd all we'd all move and we'd all learn a new language and learn a new culture. So it was a positive thing, was it? Um, at the time, no, because you're a mm-hmm. kid and you've got your friends and your school and you want to stay there. And then you have to move and it's really scary. You have to walk into this totally new environment and you don't know anyone and you don't speak the language. Um, in retrospect, I think everyone should be forced to do this because... It just gave me an ability to be at home in lots of very different types of scenarios and just to walk into places interested to learn rather than necessarily scared Mm. of them. Did you have talents that were brewing from a young age? (laughs) Did you have um, passions that stood out? You know, what was school like for you? um, I think I I quite enjoyed it, Um, certainly until I got to the UK you know, um, I think most of my reports told me that I was told my parents I was too chatty, you know, which seems to suggest I was having fun. Um, 
I hated my school in the UK um, because, uh, well, it was a horrible school and and I don't think, I can't understand why anyone would send their kids to boarding school. Like, I don't blame my parents. They did it because we were living abroad. And, you know, when we moved to Taiwan, there wasn't actually an English school past the age of 12. And so my dad's company sent my brother to school. And once he'd gone, we sort of all followed suit. But it it was a really toxic environment. Mm. Um with a real culture of bullying from the teachers to the students in this really nasty rugby macho English school way. I personally wasn't that badly bullied, but people very close to me were. Yeah. It was yeah. it was it was a pretty nasty place. It was a pretty unpleasant place. I'm wondering if that fueled will go on to your story, but sort of fueled that passion for those who haven't got a voice or I don't know you I know, know that would be a really neat story wouldn't it, <laughs> wouldn't it? let's just leave it there <laughs> I'm not sure that I I, well, I don't think I was you know, sort of switched on enough because I think when you're young and you're in that kind of environment all you're trying to do is not become the target yeah you're not really thinking about the injustices of it or the systemic nature of it you're just thinking how do I avoid being yeah, that person yeah yeah. So, um, but it's probably stayed with you. This whole the uh, experience has sure. obviously stayed with for you. Sure. And you left school at eighteen, despite receiving high grades, especially in English. Uh, I read this was due to a lack of self confidence. Can you tell us what this time was like and why you felt like that? Yeah, I, I mean that probably requires therapy that I haven't gone through to know why. <laughs> but definitely, I remember. Um, so I, I was always top of the class for English and I had this fear that it was just a fluke, that I was conning people and that I was going to get found out. So I thought I'd better quit while I was ahead. So I stayed at the top. And so for that reason, I decided to not take my English A-level. I took English AS. And, you know, looking back, I sort of think, you know, I just want to shake myself because I actually was forced to have a meeting with my teachers and I think my mum was brought in I'm trying to remember but certainly I remember having to sit down in this room where I was told you're being ridiculous you can't quit English but I was a bolshy 17 year old and I was like screw you guys I'm gonna go do theatre studies um yeah so I, I don't know why I felt like that but I did feel like that and it's interesting like I was just talking to a journalist about how I felt about the impact of my book I'm sorry if this is jumping ahead and no no go ahead we're going to talk about your book but go ahead but you know she was sort of saying you know how does it feel for this book to have come out that's had this huge impact and I think I have the same kind of sensation that I'm a fraud about to be found out um and I can't quite believe that it's me that's written this I've written this book that's I mean how did I I couldn't have done that um, yeah, it's it's so a there's very, some kind of thing going on there. But, it's a, it's yeah. an interesting thing. I don't want to generalise, but from my personal experience and and thinking back to sort of school age, you can really see this difference between girls and boys um, when studying and fear of failure, having that sort of extreme self doubt. Whereas I just and again, I don't mean to generalise. I don't witness it. I have a boy. Um, don't witness it from young boys, young teens. You know, they're almost quite confident with their abilities. And I know I'm just going from personal experience here, but there does seem to be this difference. Even from my days at school, I would manage my whole household to how I had failed, Mm. you know, so that when I, I knew I hadn't, Mm. but if I told everyone I had failed, then that 
crappy mark I got was better than failing. Mm. And so I would just, you know, and it it, it all comes to this imposter syndrome, doesn't it? It's Mm -hmm. prevalent from a young age, Mm. straight the way through. I still Mm. talk to many women um, Mm. right now with this. What are your thoughts on this? And how do you think that we can help young girls possibly Mm -hmm. not go through that feeling? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is inevitably caught up in the way that as a society, we present women so negatively, um, if we represent them at all. At all, yeah. So, you know, if I look back at my education, I wasn't, you know, history was about men. The Mm -hmm. books that I was taught to read were by men, about men. Um, When we learned about science, we were taught discoveries by men, you know, and it's only sort of recently that I think we've started to realise how much women have been written out of history um, and out of culture and out of society and, and the impact that that has. And I think it'd be really interesting, actually, to look at, you know, the girls who were raised on those um, rebel girls books, you know, which have started to come in. Yes. You know, will they experience this in the same way that that we did? I don't I mean, we don't know yet, but I think it'd yeah. be really fascinating to see that. I mean, I know that as a young woman, I... Um, and I know that a lot of, of of other women shared this because when I share it, other women say, yes, I was the same, um, felt kind of embarrassed to be a woman. You know, I really bought into this cultural stereotype of women as um, trivial and uh, superficial and over-emotional and jealous and, and boring, you know, not interested in anything interesting, unintellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt so terrified that I was going to be seen like that. That person. And I knew that I wasn't that and I didn't want to be that. Now, I wasn't intelligent enough to put two and two together and recognise the problem is with the stereotype. I just thought I was different. Mm. Um, And me and my friends thought we were different. Um, We're not like those other boring girls who we've never met. Um, But, you know, but I think that 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 fear of being caught out of being forced into this box that Mm -hmm. you don't feel you fit into. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's connected to the imposter syndrome because I think part of that not wanting to not be the top at English, you know, I think that's why it was so important to me to be the top of English because here was a sign that, you know, I was beating all the boys as well Mm. and I was intellectual and I wasn't stupid and I did have things to Mm -hmm. say. And, And I guess that deep down I was like, but I'm a woman. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting. We use the term imposter syndrome, don't we, so often nowadays. When I was in business in the early days, there wasn't, well, it was a bit like when we started um, Not in High Street, you didn't use the word entrepreneur. Mm. You know, certainly you didn't use the word imposter syndrome. And I thought it was the only feeling that, you know, I was going to be found out, you know, mm. especially being a woman in a man's business mm-hmm. world without an MBA, without a university degree, yep. got a D in business studies, A-levels. Um, and, you know, one recent survey I was looking at in the UK showed that 85% of working adults felt inadequate or in, in, incompetent at work. Mm-hmm. Um, and 70% felt that they didn't deserve their current success and yet only 25% of those people were aware of what imposter syndrome was. Mm. And it's not an issue that's going away, even though sometimes I feel like it's being more recognised. Mm. And I I always talk about how do we move the conversation forward? Mm-hmm. Because I do agree, it's great being asked to go onto female panels mm-hmm. and talk about imposter syndrome. Mm. 
but that can also start holding us back. Mm-hmm. You know, that. what do you think? What well, are your thoughts on this? I think that it's not so much talking about imposter syndrome. I think the issue is that we act as if women are just being irrational by having this imposter syndrome rather than talking about where does this come from and what are the systems that are creating this and how can we change those systems? Because actually, I don't think women are being irrational because the truth is you were being judged, Mm -hmm. you know, as a woman in a Mm -hmm. man's world who doesn't have the qualifications. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no way Mm -hmm. that if you had failed that it wouldn't have been held up as, well, obviously she failed. She's a woman Mm. in a man's world. And so Mm. women are not irrational. We're being very rational about the world that we're in, in which women are judged more harshly for their mistakes and for their failures. And they have the whole weight of their gender on them as they try and do anything outside of the prescribed norm. Because if she fails, that means women are bad at that. You know, that comic wasn't funny that one night. Women aren't funny. That woman did Mm -hmm. that maths Mm -hmm. problem wrong. Mm -hmm. Women can't do maths, Mm -hmm. right? Men don't have that weight on them. And, you know, so that is also part of it. It's not that women just are these silly little idiots who sort of don't realise how great they are. It's that they live in a world where they're consistently told women can't do this, women aren't good at this, women are boring, you know, all these stereotypes that we were talking about. And so in order to fix imposter syndrome, we're going to have to change the way we talk about and present women because women are just reacting to what's out there. So Mm, I couldn't agree with you more. I I mean, I just... Yes. And I think that's totally right. Because I, I say a lot in the office, you know, I get asked to do articles, you know, on imposter syndrome. And I and I talk about it a lot on Instagram. And I get it. Mm. But I really, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, I want to go forward. Yeah. You know, what is the forward of imposter syndrome? Well, number one, I think it's about accepting it. Mm. Uh, abs- fine. Yes, that's yeah. great. And then it's understanding how to behave maybe differently sometimes, you know, to start rewiring the mind, mm-hmm. um, that internal monologue that you have. Mm-hmm. And as you said, rightly so, never thought of it, looking at what's out there that's making you feel that way mm-hmm. and that you're not thinking something that uh, that's not actually happening. Well, it not is happening. Yeah. You know, yes, it, it, yes. I mean, it's hysterical like it's or emotional. Form, right, hysterical, which is what... It just feeds into this stereotype of women yeah. as like yeah. as irrational. And it's sort of a form of gaslighting in a way, you know, yeah. that you're just making this up, silly woman. Like this isn't what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, I, I assign that voice, you know, silly woman, that's not meant to be men saying that, right? That is us as a society because we are so lacking in representations of the female perspective, you know. So, I mean, one of the things that was such a joy and delight for me when I suddenly realised feminism wasn't a load of rubbish and that women weren't, you know, useless and crap. I don't know what the swearing position is on this podcast. It's a swearing podcast. It's a swearing podcast. It's a happy swearing podcast. Okay. Well, the filter's off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, was reading women writers and recognising how I experienced the, the world in their writing, something which you know, I had been kind of missing. That was such an incredible experience for me. But also, you know, I think this is how we end up in this situation where we can sort of think with a straight face that women are women are being hysterical about this thing. That's not really what it's like. It's because we don't have enough representations of, no, actually, every time a woman walks into an office, this happens, right? Because 
all the films and books and whatever about what happens when a man walks into an office or how a man reacts when a woman walks into an office. You know, it's not seeing it from... So the female perspective isn't normalised and therefore we... We've got so much to find out still, actually, about how women as a collective experience the world and therefore how that shapes their way of engaging with it. And the world. And, and shapes the world. The world. Yeah. You, you, going back for a moment, you did return to education where you gained a place to study English at Oxford University as a, mature, as a mature student graduating in 2012. And it was at this time which led you to becoming a feminist, as you uh, as you touched on. Tell me about this moment. Why did mm-hmm. you go back? Did you just want to say, actually, I should have done that A-level? I just hated my job. <laughs> and I was really miserable. It was um, web design and email marketing. And like, there was nothing wrong with the company. Like, they were lovely. I just wasn't getting anything out of it. Fulfilled. I felt, yeah, I, I felt completely unfulfilled. And, and I was, it made me depressed. And around that time, um, started dating this guy who had gone to Oxford and was now a teacher. And it was the first time I'd ever met someone of my age who was doing a job that seemed to mean something. And I don't know why, but I just somehow had never really thought that I could do a job that meant something. I know that sort of sounds weird, but yeah, that was a real sort of, I don't know, like a moment where I started thinking maybe my future doesn't have to be this. Maybe I don't have to be living this life. And it took a bit of a while to get around to thinking that I would do my English A-level, but eventually realised that that if I wanted to go to university, I was going to have to because the thing that I wanted to study was English and I couldn't do it without my English A-level. So um, I applied for university and got into Oxford, which was just Amazing. so incredible. Like I, I was so, I mean, you're not really meant, it's not very cool to say you were delighted, but I just was absolutely over the moon. I could not believe it. It was what I wanted to do. And, and when I went there for the interview, you know, I just... I was just like, this is incredible. I just loved it. Like, I enjoyed the interview because I was, you know, a nerd, right? And you just get to sit in a room talking to these super intelligent people about the intricacies of some passage that they've chosen for you. Yeah, it, it was... God, you talk about highs and lows. That was probably one of the biggest highs of my life getting into Oxford. We're proud to partner with NatWest. They support small businesses in so many ways. Just one of these ways is through Backer Business. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. Listen to the end of this podcast to find out more. With a continued commitment to small businesses, NatWest, in a world first, give away the rest of this ad break space to small businesses and independents. They truly believe in the power of small and want to give you the opportunity to showcase your business to hundreds and thousands of listeners. So without further ado, let me hand over to this week's NatWest Independent Ad Break winner. My name is Sally and I created Mumbler, the hyperlocal parenting website, which provides everything that a local family could need to know. 
I had a hell of a week in June 2011. On the Monday, I moved my family 250 miles north. I bought an uninhabitable house. And on the Thursday, I gave birth to my second daughter. I needed to get out and about with my kids. And I couldn't believe that in the digital age, the information that I needed as as a busy mum was not readily available. And so I created it. And that's how my business, Mumbler, was born. My core mission is to make family life easier, both online and in real life. And my users believe in their brand because they know we will always do the right thing. I franchised Mumbler in 2016 and I currently have 19 Mumbler territories and we want to expand. I'm looking now for franchisees who are motivated and ambitious, who want to take the freedom and flexibility of being their own boss, but with the security of an established brand. So if you want to find out more, contact me at mumbler.co.uk. If you'd like to take NatWest up on their generosity and be listened to by thousands of people, take that leap of faith and send in your small business advert to independentadbreaks at holly.co. We're looking for the wonderful stories that only small businesses have and have created more information on exactly what we're looking for on our website, holly.co. In 2012, when you left Oxford, Mm -hmm. this person who couldn't even bear to do an A-level is now going to go on to want to do a master's. And this is where you founded the Women's Room. Tell me more about this, because it was it was all a reaction to the BBC's Today show. What Mm. was that? So basically, it was two days in a row that the Today programme had an all-male panel talking about women's bodies. So the first day was. <laughs> um, yep. So the first day we're talking about uh, women and their experiences of this particular kind of breast cancer test, where uh, John Humphreys, who was the interviewer, asked this male breast cancer expert, "If you were a woman, would you take this test?" Um, which was uh, humorous. And then the next day was an all-male panel talking about teenage girls and their contraception. You know, which like. Literally any woman, because they have been a teenage girl, would have been better. And, you know, for both of those moments, the BBC said, oh, well, we tried to find a female breast cancer expert, but couldn't find one. And we found about 50 within about, you know, half an hour female breast cancer experts who were like, yep, I'm an expert. I would have done that. Um, And so we decided, this was um, me and a friend on Twitter decided that if the BBC weren't going to make the effort of finding these experts, we would find them for them and present them to them on a database. So um, that was the birth of the women's room. And it's still going, but sort of with minimal input from me. I just have, I prove experts once a week and and journalists and generally feel very, very guilty that I don't have time to do anything else with it. Because I feel it could be so much better, you know. Um, but, but it's at least there. The time. It is there. I mean, it is there. there. And, you know, journalists are still signing up to it and experts are still signing up to fantastic. it. So it is still going. It's yeah. fantastic. And it wasn't long after this that you embarked on the next sort of campaign for change. Mm-hmm. After discovering, and again, as I said, I couldn't believe this, that the Bank of England were phasing out, correct me if I'm wrong here, but phasing out the £5 note with the only female representation on any of our notes, Elizabeth Fry, Mm -hmm. and swapping it to Winston Churchill. Can you tell us the story of how you first learned of this change and what you had to go through to successfully win your campaign? Because you did, and Jane Austen became the face of our £10 notes. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks to you. I mean, I'd I'd be so honoured you telling us firsthand this story. So, you know, honestly, I really didn't think it would be a big campaign. I thought that it was just an oversight by the bank, which I still think it was, because usually this kind of stuff is. They just hadn't realised that it was going to be all white men on their banknotes. And so I thought, naive little me, I'll just point it out and they'll say, oh, thanks very much. That's a very good point. We'll change our entire thing (laughs) for you. Of course, it did not end up like that. And uh, we ended up having to um, threaten them with a judicial review. And there were lawyers' letters exchanged, which was a kind of fascinating process because I'd never been involved in any kind of legal dispute before. And um, again, I think I was quite naive. I sort of thought that if you ask a lawyer a straight question, they have to give you a straight answer. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, they don't. They obfuscated. They answered questions that we hadn't asked instead of the ones that we had asked. They dismissed our questions as a fishing expedition. So what we were trying to get at was how did they come to this decision whereby they ended up with four white men on the back of the banknotes. And the idea was that, you know, we wanted to look at their decision making process. And one of the reasons for that was that if you look at their what they called their objective selection criteria, um, they were things like must have good artwork, must have good name recognition, must not be controversial. And basically, that's just so much harder for a woman to achieve. You know, women have been written out of history. Exactly. So they don't have good name recognition. And they certainly, until five seconds ago, weren't having portraits made of them. Certainly not, especially, you know, if they weren't upper middle class. Um, And most women, you know, well-behaved women don't make history, right? They're controversial. So these so-called objective selection criteria were highly subjective. And I found that so fascinating. And it's really something that has, has fascinated me for a long time and continues to fascinate me, how so many seemingly common sense, neutral rules, regulations, systems that we've put into place are actually invisibly biased Mm -hmm. towards a particular outcome but because we don't specifically say oh we're only looking for white people or oh we're only looking for men or oh we're only looking for people who I don't know grew up wherever right we don't we think that they're neutral and objective but they're not neutral in in, in any way at all and so you know I mean it was so unsurprising that they ended up without any women anyway so eventually um we were you know right up against the deadline. like The deadline was that day or the next day where we were going to have to take it to the court, right up to the wire. I mean, I guess they were probably playing chicken with us. They didn't realise. Yes. I was bloody serious about this. <laughs> right, we, we raised um, yes, £13,000... For the legal fees and to things. ...to get the legal fees yeah. going. I mean, we would have needed more than that, but, you know, it was enough certainly to file. And so they, they called and said, you know, will you come in for a meeting? and said, we're going to change the selection criteria, we're going to engage with discriminated against groups and come up with a better procedure. And ultimately, the basis upon which they were going to decide the procedure was that actually a diverse, a diverse lineup mattered, that that was part of representing the best of British, which was Amazing. fantastic. Con- so. I mean, but your victory came with an incredibly saddening and dark side and instantly after winning your case you became the target of incredibly vicious and hateful threats on social media. I couldn't actually believe it when I was reading up on this but you encountered threats of rape, threats of murder, 50 threats per hour, 
all due to misogyny and this outrage that a woman would be so bold to cause such a fuss, to go back to almost that sort of suffragette way of campaigning. You were far too vocal for their liking. And I just couldn't get my head around this when reading what you actually had to go through. Tell people listening what this experience was like, because I know it was an incredibly scary time for you. Yeah, it was really frightening. Um, because I was being sent very graphic and detailed, angry threats about, you know, precisely what implement they were going to use on which part of my body um, and how I was going to be tortured, gang raped, whatever, to death. Um, They were trying to find me, you know, they were looking for addresses and they found some. Um, And actually one of the police officers working on my case said, you know, you should expect them to eventually find you, which (laughs) was also terrifying. Uh, I had a panic alarm installed in my house and I was frightened to go outside um, because, you know, it's all very well for people who who haven't gone through this to say, oh, well, it's only the Internet and like they're just a bunch of losers. Um, It only needed one of them to really mean it. And I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they were capable of. One message that really stuck with me, uh, I remember someone tweeting saying, just think this could be someone you know. I didn't know. It could be someone I knew. I I didn't know who these people were. So, yeah, it was was really frightening. You're very, I mean, you're so strong because you go on to keep battling for all of us. And it's just saddening to think that someone who's just campaigning for equality, for basically positive change... Not much. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you weren't trying to really hurt, you know, just a picture on a banknote. Right. You know, that was it. That you get this shocking abuse. And I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Um, People were arrested in the end as Mm -hmm. a consequence. And was it right that you implemented a change or you inspired the change for Twitter too to report a, um, to create an abuse button? Yeah. So basically, when that was happening, um, the procedures for reporting abuse on Twitter were appalling. Um, You had to go to a separate website, copy and paste in the link of the tweet, copy and paste in the content of the tweet. So, you know, you have to to reread and re-engage with this thing saying we're going to, you know, shove a poker up your vagina Um, and then explain why it was upsetting or offensive. And, you know, just this long Mm. um, form that took about five minutes per Tweet. And, you know, as you say, I was absolutely inundated with tweets. There was no way it would have been a full time job to to report them more than a full time job. Um, So that was something that I campaigned for and was pushing for that they needed to make the procedure much better. Um, And they have, you know, I mean, they did. They installed a report abuse button, which did not exist prior to to what happened to me. Why do you think trolling is so prevalent today? And um, do you have any advice for victims of it? Yeah, this is something I think about quite a lot. I mean, I think that the tenor of the political debate in general has become really aggressive and abusive. um, And trolling is part of that. Um, It's about power and control. And people who behave in this way are people who feel threatened and I think they feel threatened about their lack of power and control that that they feel they should have 
And I don't think that this is just misogynistic trolls. You know, I think that this is actually something that's much wider than that. Um, and it's a huge problem with politics today, the way that people like people are really angry. Um, and, you know, obviously, well, I generally get, society, yeah. we're just angry. I get angry, too. You know, I don't always um, behave in ways that I'm proud of. I'm not always, you know, the best put together. I sometimes say things I regret. But I feel like in politics today, we increasingly are making a virtue out of being angry. And it's just fueling fire on fire of one side against the other. So the way we are all doing this is making mm -hmm. it a lot worse. Um, and it's going to continue to get worse until we start to take a deep breath, take a step back and maybe try to engage with people more generously. Um, so that's sort of my take on it and I guess a bit of advice as well. But in terms of advice on specifically how you should handle trolling, um, I mean, every person's different. And it really, the thing about being trolled like that is that you are made to feel um, isolated, particularly if it's happening on social media. Because, you know, if you're being shouted at in a pub, people can see that that's happening. Yes. In social media, only you know that this is happening. Um, and for some people, they just need to block and pretend it's not happening. For some people, they may need to talk about it and say, look, this is happening to me. I get really angry when people say don't feed the trolls because sometimes people have to talk about what's happening to them because they feel completely alone. And that's the point of the trolling. The trolling is meant to make you feel like there's something wrong with you, like there's no one who's there to support you and like you should shut up. Um mm -hmm. And so it is more you, important for that person to feel like they're taking a bit of power back than to, quote unquote, not feed the trolls. So you do not believe in that. So you, no, you feel, not. yeah, out them, shame them. Well, tell you don't people have to. Or tell them what's happening but to you. Tell you, people that you're going through this experience. Well, only if you want to. You might yeah. not want to. Yeah, no, I know. But there my, isn't my one advice rule is, No, there this. isn't a rule. And my advice is you do whatever you need to do that makes you able to cope with it, that makes you feel more in control, more uh, like you're not allowing them to win. And that might mean uh, going off Twitter. For me, like, absolutely not. There's no way I was going to leave Twitter. Fuck those guys. Like, that's what they wanted. I was going to stay there and I was going to talk about it. Um, but obviously that draws more fire, yeah. you know. And you knew you could handle it ultimately. Yourself. As I'm in not sure I knew I could handle it. I think it's just... Because actually, it, it did have a really bad impact on me for quite a long time. But um, I couldn't let them win. It no. wasn't that I knew I could cope with it. It was that I couldn't let them yeah. win. I'd love to talk to you about your famous campaign that was to put the first female statue in Parliament Square in London. Could you just share what happened? I believe that you were jogging. Was, was that right? And yeah. it was it International Women's Day? It was. And so you were jogging on International I Women's know. Day. And you had this moment. Yeah. Being surrounded by lots of men. Yes. In rocks, in stone. <laughs> so, yeah, it was International Women's Day. And as tends to happen to feminists on International Women's Day, I had a number of panels. And, you know, I had my dog with me, as I always do. And she needed some exercise. So I took her for a run between the two panels. And the run happened to take me over Westminster Bridge and into Parliament Square. And I guess, you know, because I'd been doing this panel where we had been talking about the lack of representation of women, it was at that moment, despite having been to Parliament Square many times before, that I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. No, <laughs> surely 
these statues are not all of men. And I guess in my kind of arrogance, I'd kind of felt, well, I, I already ran the banknotes campaign. Now it's sorted everywhere. Um, so I was sure that someone must have dealt with this already. I couldn't. So I went round. I was just really checking. And um, yeah, all the statues, 11 statues, they were all men. And I just was so shocked. This felt to me like such an obvious place, the first place you would fix this kind of thing. But uh I mean, I had literally said at that panel, something I get asked quite often is, oh, what's your next campaign on? And and I, well, for a start, I never know because you have to kind of lose your mind for a second to run a campaign because it's absolutely thankless and horrible and obviously you don't get paid for it and it takes over your life and whatever. <laughs> so I, and obviously, you know, you might end up getting sent rape and death threats. So yeah. I didn't have another um, campaign planned and I didn't really want to do another campaign because, you know, I was a struggling freelance writer. I needed to focus on that. But anyway, then I went for this run and I saw these statues and I sent a tweet thinking I won't send a start campaign, but I'll send a tweet saying this should happen. Um, so it's outrageous. No statues of women in Parliament Square. Um, so we should put one in, you know, there's, for the centenary of women getting first, the first women getting the vote. Should put in a suffragette. And I was running through St. James Park. I couldn't stop thinking about this running around Green Park, couldn't stop thinking about it. And then um, as I was coming back, I realised I was composing the campaign text in my head. And so at that point, I sort of gave into the inevitable. And I sat down outside Buckingham Palace and on my phone set up a petition asking the Mayor of London, who at the time was Boris Johnson, um, to put the first statue of a woman in Parliament Square. And I said it should be someone to mark the centenary of uh, the first woman getting the vote in Britain. I cannot quite believe that you, yeah, you went on to that little thing. Do you know what I mean? It's like one thing after. So after this successful petition and campaign, it was in April 2017 mm-hmm. that Sadiq Khan announced that Gillian Waring had been commissioned to create a statue of the women's suffragette Millicent Fawcett, mm-hmm. the first woman to be featured in a statue in the square. And Waring is the first female sculptor. Yeah to have a statue located there. Mm-hmm. And announcing the plan for the statue, Sadiq Khan said, it's simply not right that nearly a century after women's suffragettes, Parliament Square is still a male-only zone. And I'm thrilled that this is soon to change thanks to Caroline's inspired campaign. It's, it, there's a plinth, isn't there, on the statue mm-hmm. where the names and pictures of 55 women mm-hmm. and four men who fought for women's rights um, to vote. It is just, I mean... I, I just want to add yeah. something there because it co- it goes back to this supposedly objective selection criteria of the bank because one of those squares is, um, is blank because it's of a working-class suffragist who obviously hadn't had her portrait taken, uh, Jessie Cragen. And, you know, I I actually cried when I saw that square because it just... This is a woman who fought so hard for rights that we now take for granted. And she could never have imagined that as a working class woman, she would end up in a square, mm. in, in this in this square, being honoured in this way. Mm. Um, so I found that incredibly moving. But, but, you know, it did also make me think of this. The bank's, you know, just random criteria must have good artwork. Why? You know, that's mm. just saying mm. that there is a section of society who we will never honour because we don't have good artwork for them. What was that day like when you saw the statue and it got revealed? Um, very nerve-wracking, because I had to make a speech for you know in front of these crowds and on TV. 
and you know I'm not a politician I don't know anything about doing stuff like that um so I was quite nervous and and I think the whole thing felt a little bit unreal and also you know I know nothing about protocol and etiquette and I'm sure I said completely the wrong thing to Theresa May because she looked very affronted when I just said, thank you for coming. I think she thought, well, I'm hosting you. Why, why are you thanking me? So I don't think I did very well. But anyway, um, it, was, it was amazing. And then I went out with my friends to the pub. So, As you do. As you do. As you do. We've teamed up with our friends at Three and all year we'll be working together to make dreams come true. Share your dreams on social using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer and who knows what will come true. With a Three Means business plan, I love that you can get up to £500 worth of benefits from their partners to help give your business a lift in those early days. Now over to a short story about those that dreamed big and flew. Vivian Westwood came from humble beginnings and big dreams. Her father was a cobbler, whilst her mother worked at a local cotton mill. At the age of 17, the future fashion icon would work at a local factory and eventually enrolled at a teacher training school. But when she started to teach herself by taking apart old clothes to copy the patterns, everything changed. Her first marriage dissolved and she met McLaren, an art student and future manager of the Sex Pistols, introducing her to a new world of creative freedom and showed her the power art could have on the political landscape. Sadly for years, she lived in the shadow of her partner, who once described this incredible woman as his seamstress. And when they broke up in 1981, Westwood began designing alone and built herself up bit by bit. One of the founders of punk, she overcame controversy, often dividing the nation with her designs. But in 2011, she was awarded an OBE and then became a dame. Westwood pushed through day by day and her net worth is now estimated to be a whopping £43 million and it's this wealth she now uses to fund her political and environmental campaigns. Don't forget to share your own business dream using hashtag Holly and Co Dreamer. To discover more about business plans, search 3 Means Business. I'd love to talk to you about your incredible book, your second book. Um, it was published last year called Invisible Women. We've been passing it around in the office, reading Yay. it, um, exposing data bias in a world designed for men. And um, we've got one poor guy in the office and he's sort of burying his head at the moment. Um, it's a, it was a Sunday Times. <laughs> well, he should best... read it. Well, I know, it. absolutely. I, I hear from a lot of male readers, you know, they're really into it. You know, I think they like that it's got data in the title. <laughs> It was a Sunday Times bestseller, spending 16 weeks in the bestseller list and also named as a book of the decade by the Sunday Times. So not bad again for someone who didn't want to take their English A-levels. Um, <laughs> it's such an eye-opening read. What led to the idea of the book? And could you share mm -hmm. some of your learnings with us? Because mm -hmm. it is a really important read. Tell me about what led so, you to... Well, it was, it was... There's a sort of long... And a short answer. So I'm going to give you the long answer. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Good. So the long answer is really that I have been preparing to write this book since I became a feminist. 
And that is because of the way that I became a feminist, which was at Oxford, where uh, I had to read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory, which I know doesn't sound like the book that, you know, it's not like the female eunuch turned me into a feminist. But anyway, um, and, you know, as I've mentioned prior to this point, I'd absolutely not been a feminist. I thought very little of women. I thought feminism was stupid and embarrassing. We had equal rights now. Feminism was basically just an excuse for people who just didn't want to put in the work. Anyway, I had to read this book and it was this section talking about uh, the generic male in grammar. So he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. Obviously in other languages it's far more intertwined, but in English, you know, that's basically where it is. And, you know, like a lot of people who don't know much about feminism, I had actually heard of this. I'd heard, you know, feminists complain about the use of the generic male, he to mean he or she. And again, like a lot of people who don't know much about feminism, rolled my eyes and thought, you know, this is exactly why feminism is so stupid. It's so trivial. Who gives a fuck about, you know, mm-hmm. the pronoun? Everyone yep. knows it means he or she. But then I read this thing. The next line was, studies show that when women read or hear these words, they picture a man. And that just blew my mind because I couldn't understand how I had never noticed before that I was picturing men when I heard these words, despite the fact that I'm a woman. You know, why am mm. I not picturing women like at least 50 percent of the time? Right. Um, and it was a real sharp shock, you know, because I thought of myself as this objective. You know, I'm like a guy and I'm intellectual and I you know, don't have any of these silly woman emotions and then discovered actually this whole thing was going on. I had absolutely no idea about it. And I started to really question why I had such a low opinion of women. And, you know, started to think about, you know, what we were talking about with my education having been so male dominated. And, you know, I hadn't really learned anything about women. And then I started to get angry, you know, because I thought about all the women I'd been denied, all the incredible women that I started to discover had existed and written amazing things. And the female literature that I had not exactly been denied, I mean, I'd been denying it myself because I chose not to read it because. I wanted to read proper literature, but I'd been denied it by virtue of it not being seen as proper literature. So all this was kind of going on in my head. And I, and I became sort of evangelical about, about needing to tackle this bias towards assuming men are the default. And because that was the way I came into it, and because I had this firsthand experience of how powerful it could be, I think that was why, as I sort of went on my journey, I guess you could call it, I started noticing all these instances where this assumption that the male body, the male experience was the human experience was causing discrimination, like unintended discrimination. That was the thing that I found really interesting. It's not that I'm not interested in intended discrimination. It's I just find unintended discrimination more mm. interesting. And well, I didn't even realise it was there until I've read your book. Right. Well, that's the thing. You know, that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book. I wanted to give people the experience that I had. So the first thing I discovered was um, when I went and studied for my master's I studied um, behavioral economics and feminist economics and that was where I discovered how the whole economy is designed around this mythical male figure homo economicus and we don't count women's unpaid care work even though it has a very high value for GDP and therefore we are allocating resources incorrectly because we're not measuring the economy properly you know and then I found out about the UN declaration on refugees which was this again you know, this amazing document, it's so clear this is unintended to, you know, that it wasn't intended to make it harder for women to claim asylum than men. And yet the stipulations, rather like the objective selection criteria from the bank, 
these objective stipulations make it much harder for women. So things like you have to leave the country that you're fleeing from before you can claim asylum. Much harder for women. It's much less likely they'll have a, be able to get a visa to travel legally. Lots of women coming from countries where they can't travel without a male guardian. And then if they do manage to get to whatever country it is, they have to prove that their discrimination is specifically because a set uh, list of criteria and those criteria, sure, they can be reasons we, women are discriminated against, like sexuality or religious belief, or political affiliation. Um, but the number one reason that women will say that they're being discriminated against is because they're women. You know, that is the number one number, thing yeah. that is a Should problem. Be the top right? of the list, yes. But, but sex and gender are not part, part of the of list. It. So, you know, you've got women having to fit their experiences into these square boxes. And so I was sort of unconsciously collecting all these examples, you know, sort of realising it's not just about what's going on in women's heads. This is materially affecting their lives. And then when I was researching my first book, I came across the thing that just completely blew my mind, which was that we had the default male in medicine and that we weren't studying female bodies because... We thought they were too complicated and we were using the male body as this sort of universal template. And therefore, things like women were having more adverse drug reactions. Women were being misdiagnosed if they had a heart attack because we didn't know enough about female symptoms or how heart, heart disease mechanically pro progresses in women. And, you know, I think we're all quite sort of well versed in the idea that our culture is kind of sexist and our culture underrepresents women. You know, the media, films, parliament, whatever. But we think science is objective. Science is neutral. Science is about facts. And so to discover that science had this huge woman problem, this gaping hole, woman-shaped hole, um, and that women were dying was just so... <laughs> Yeah. Unbelievable. Just and and, so and as you said, I think we're seeing things. It's being spoken about. Mm. But actually what you were looking at, the data, looking at it through that lens cap, it hadn't been it hasn't been done before. But now this is opening up a whole other side. Yeah. And it's you can call it depressing because actually you know, I feel a bit stupid for not knowing. You know, I want you to, to if you can But you shouldn't because well, it it, it our entire society is structured this way. It would be weird if you didn't have that bias. Everyone has that bias because, mm. you know, that that's just the way society is. We represent men as the gender neutral in all sorts of areas. You, know, if you think about sport. The, the, the male sport is the gender neutral one. You know, men have rugby. They have football. Women have women's rugby, women's football. It's absolutely everywhere. And so you shouldn't mm. be at all surprised you know, I challenge listeners of this podcast to picture uh, a professor, picture a writer, picture a journalist, picture a sports personality. You're picturing men. We all yeah. do it. Yeah, you're so right. Can you tell me briefly before we come to the end, but tell me about this campaign for women's toilets and why they're, <laughs> why it's a feminist <laughs> issue? Because this is one of the things that I literally was sitting this morning doing my makeup telling my other half all about the toilets. Uh -huh. And, you know, you couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, OK, look, it's not a campaign. No. <laughs> not running yeah. a campaign. No, sorry. Not, it's not a toilet. This is not Caroline's <laughs> new campaign. It's a toilet campaign. But tell me about this because this is it's, it, it really did well, the thing shock that's me. Really interesting about the toilets issue, you know, it's quite a small part of the book. 
But it's something that women have really seized on. And so if you look at my Twitter mentions on any given day, you will find pictures that women have sent me of themselves standing in a queue for the toilet. Um, Because I think it's, again, another example. I have accepted for 43 years with no question and had my other half and everyone roll their eyes at how long it took me to go to the loo and apologising. Yeah. It's no, just I one agree. of those things that's you in your everyday life. And yeah. you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't. And I think women that. are angry because you're right. It's about the having blamed ourselves and been blamed and had men laughing at us and saying, Oh, why do you all go, you know, take well, so long? You, you put there? your makeup in there. So yeah, I think you're right. I think it is because women are so pissed off to discover this thing that they have been blamed for has got nothing to do with them and everything to do with bad design. So basically, the way that toilets have traditionally been done, and you can see why they've been done like this because it seems fair on the face of it is that men and women have equal floor space now immediately that means men get more provision because urinals take up less space than cubicles and men have a mixture of urinals and cubicles and so you get basically more men peeing at the same time women will also take longer to use the fewer cubicles that they have and that is for a number of reasons first of all it's just the mechanics of a cubicle versus a urinal right you just go up to your urinal you unzip and you go off you go I assume. Um, <laughs> in a cubicle, you know, you've got to go down the list, link the thing of cubicles to see which one's free because the doors are closed. Um, open the door, find that one's disgusting, you know, move on to the next one. Um, anyway, you get into your cubicle. You're not a frontward facing peer, uh, yes. which sounds silly, but, you know, it adds yeah. time. You've got to yeah. turn around. You've got to find somewhere to hang your bag, yeah. assuming there is somewhere to hang your bag. Um, you have to probably have wiped the toilet seat because yes. we have to sit down the seat. It's probably disgusting. So all that is taking time. And then you have to reverse the process to get out so there's that but then there's also proportion of women who will be on their period um, who have to change their tampon or change their pad you've got pregnant women who need to go to the toilet much more frequently because they've got a baby on their bladder women who have urinary tract infections women are eight times more likely to suffer from urinary tract infections and as any woman who has had the misfortune to suffer one it means you're chained to the toilet And then you've got the fact that women are much more likely than men to be accompanied by young children or older or disabled people. So basically, you've got the situation where there is far more demand on the female toilet, but we have less provision. And so that's why we end up queuing. Now, everyone from this podcast, when you're standing in a queue and you don't know what to do, and we never talk to anyone in the queue, do we? Let's tell this story to all the women in the queue, okay? And then when they go back and the man eye rolls, you can then bet that the conversation's going to change. It's not going to be a sorry. There's going to be, I'll have you know, actually. Well, even better than that, complain to the management. Yes, you're right. God damn, I'm right. You are right. (laughs) Yes, she is right. And you know what? This is just, I could really, you are... You are phenomenal and you're an inspiration. And, you know, we really, really should thank our lucky stars that you were um, you were born because, <laughs> no, well, you know what, really? I thought you were going to say something like you were free and I was like, oh, that's no, nice. But no, but no you were born because actually, you know, for everyone listening, we weren't all going to do this and you did. And so I, I thank you on behalf of all of us listening. At the end of this interview, I normally would ask, and I am going to ask, um, <laughs> that your life has been obviously a pretty much an epic roller coaster. Well, this segment of it has mm-hmm. certainly been. Tell me, with your feminist um, flag flying, what would you say has been your biggest low on this roller coaster? Uh, the rape and death threats, um, because. 
I yeah, I mean, they had an awful impact on me, and um, I've never been so scared in my life. And conversely, the high was just before that was my first big win. The Jane Austen campaign. Well, actually, I don't... What, scrap that. It's not a Jane Austen campaign. I get so angry when people call it a Jane Austen campaign. <laughs> the banknotes campaign. Because I just couldn't believe that just me, this student, had taken on the Bank of England and won. It was just absolutely incredible. I couldn't... I just... Yeah, I couldn't believe it. And someone that you think that... Um, has inspired you or someone that you feel I could interview for this podcast? Well, you'd struggle to interview her because she's dead. Okay. <laughs> but, but who but, would it be? Uh, it would be Millicent Fawcett because she fought her entire life for this one fundamental right for women to be allowed to vote. She was there collecting signatures for the first petition uh, to be handed into Parliament when she was too young to sign it herself. Um, demanding the right for, for votes for women. And she was up there in the Ladies' Gallery in 1929 watching the Equal Franchise Act being passed. Having to spend your whole life on one fight um, just feels overwhelming and so daunting. But also, the fight must have seemed so impossible. You know, yes. people think that what I do is audacious or whatever. But like, imagine back then... Women had no power at all. We didn't have the vote. And without the vote, you can't get anything. And so to have the audacity to think that you're going to be able to make this happen, this fundamental freedom without which you can't get any other freedom, was just incredible. And I think that, as, uh, that feminists today should take a leaf out of their book and we should be more radical in what we demand. I don't think we're radical enough. I agree. Um, and I those agree. women really, like, they took the piss, yeah. you know, give us the vote. Yeah. I mean, I'm not joking. I mean, th that was just a crazy thing to ask for. I am now going to hand over to you. It's just been fantastic. You've really opened my mind. And I know you would have opened so many minds um, listening to your tale. And thank you for allowing me to capture it. But I'm now going to hand over to you to read your letter to okay. your younger self. Okay. Dear me, I'm still not that old, so I'm not sure I'm really wise enough to be giving you advice as if I have reached a place of enlightenment. But on the other hand, I'm definitely wiser than you are, so shut up and listen, even though I am a woman. Yeah, that's right. I know all about your internalised misogyny, and I know how you would scoff at that term and roll your eyes. I know what you think of feminism, and I know what you think of women. I know you think you're not like other girls. I know you think you're better than that. You know you're better than that. But more than this, I know you're scared. I know you're scared that other people, men, won't recognise that you're better than that. I know you're scared that this body you're in, with its growing breasts that are getting you all this confusing attention, a lot of it unpleasant and invasive, is pushing you into a box that you reject because it doesn't begin to define you. You don't want to be part of a box marked trivial, superficial, unintelligent, boring. You want to be respected. You want to be taken seriously. You want to be one among equals. And you are terrified that you won't get a chance to prove that you are. Because people, boys and men, because who cares what other women think, will just see your female body and put you in the box marked to fuck, to laugh at, not with, to patronise. Well, I'm here to tell you that you're right to be scared, because that is exactly what is going on. 
People are trying to put you into that box. You will have to fight your whole life to be allowed out of it. But here's the thing you're missing. This is exactly what feminism is about. It's not about making excuses for crap women and giving them a leg up when they won't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's about this unfair, dehumanising box and getting rid of it. Because what you need to know is, it's not just you that doesn't fit in this box. No woman fits in this box. Because this box is, yes, misogynistic, patriarchal bullshit. And the sooner you realise this, the better. Because realising this will mean you start to seek out women and the stories we tell. You will read amazing writers like Margaret Atwood instead of rejecting them because they aren't men and therefore not serious writers speaking universal truths. And you will recognise your own experience, your own perspective. You will recognise how the world feels like to you and you will feel less alone. You will realise that the reason you didn't always identify with how the great male writers you have always looked up to presented the world isn't because there's something wrong with you. It's because they are shit at writing women, naming no names Charles Dickens. Their truths are not any more universal than yours. And that's okay. That's the truth. I wish I could introduce you to feminism so much earlier than you found it, because it would save you so much pain and self-doubt, not to mention several extremely shitty relationships that nearly destroyed you. But I'm here to tell you that although it is going to be hard, and there will be some tough times, you will find your way. You will discover sisterhood. You will discover that you are like other girls and the world will suddenly make so much more sense to you. With love and a slightly irritated smack on the head, Caroline. <laughs> Thank you, Caroline. <laughs> Thank you. For those who've listened to this podcast, I'm normally in tears, but I feel really inspired. I feel... I feel um, I need to go and do something, now, you know, and I think anyone that's listened to this podcast will feel the same. You know, sisterhood, we're in it together, mm -hmm. um, but we need to be less quiet, less how we should behave or what we feel that we should behave. And we should all in our own ways do something. After listening to this podcast, just do something. And if it's buying your book, it's going to be a great first step because armed with I facts, because men like facts. <laughs> and do you agree with that, do you? Yeah, yeah, I think it probably Probably that's the, the most important first step you could take is buying my book. <laughs> You've been amazing. Thank you so much. And I Thank wish you. you I wish you everything. And I'll be Thank right you. behind you. Thank, Thank you, you, Caroline. Thank you. Before you go, here's a little more about Backer Business. Last year, NatWest's CEO, Alison Rose, wrote the Rose Review and discovered that if women launched and scaled businesses at the same rate as men, it would represent an untapped £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Isn't that unbelievable? So they created Backer Business, managed by Crowdfunder. This programme will match fund up to a million pounds a year, creating hundreds of successful applicants when they crowdfund through Backer Business. To find out more information, search NatWest Backer Business. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, if it has helped you along your own journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing this episode and podcast? Your support means the world and it really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will 
find that all the things that I have said will come to when you are lying in your bed. And if you want your friends to come.